pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, we announced this on Workplace, and if you don't know what Workplace is, it's a private social media app we use to communicate as a church. If you are part of the crossing, you want, you're becoming a part of the crossing, you're leaning in, you want to know more about who we are as a church, just let us know. We can get you on Workplace. You can stay in touch with uh, things that we have going on. But we share that on March 5th, we'll be baptizing two people. Uh, who have professed faith in Jesus and they want to make known to everyone that what we see happen in baptism, that we've been buried with Christ Jesus, uh, uh, dead in Christ Jesus, raised to walk in the news of life, this has happened inside of them. And so they're ready to declare that to you. So we're super excited. We'll celebrate that with them. If that's not something you've experienced as a follower of Jesus, if you've, if you've not followed Jesus in obedience, in baptism, which is why we do this. It's, it's following Jesus in obedience. He was baptized, so we're, like him, we're baptized. And it's our way to declare, it has been this way for 2,000 years, our way of declaring to the world we're followers of Jesus. That, that we have a new king, we have a new boss, it's Jesus. He's who has all of our allegiance. He's who has all our devotion, all of our dedication. He is who we're chasing after. That's what baptism is declaring. I'm trying to live this new life. You help me do that. If you've not done that, and you'd like to do that on March the 5th, let us know. We'd love to talk, sit down, and make sure you understand all of that. Help you write your story. We have a specific way we do baptisms here. Um, if you want to do that, but you're like, I can't do it by March 5th, that's fine. Just let us know, and we'll, we'll get you ready. It's super easy to do baptisms. We have a portable baptistry. We bring it out, fill it up, warm water. It's not cold. And, um, and we do it at the beginning of our worship gathering. And so it's not hard at all to do that any Sunday. Uh, but just let us know. Uh, if I had to recommend one book of the Bible for a new believer in Jesus to read, understand, obey, 1 Peter would be a great choice. Some scholars have even made the case, it's not conclusive, but some believe this book may have been read at baptismal ceremonies in years past when the early church was gathering and growing. That Here's how you follow Jesus now that you've declared your allegiance to Jesus through baptism. So let's jump in. 1 Peter 1, beginning in uh, verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Last week we covered the who of 1 Peter, who was Peter, and how did all we know about Peter's experiences with Jesus flavor this letter? Today we look more at who he was writing to and what he was beginning to say about them and to them. And he begins with these theological bombshells. Words that have deep and complex meaning, but reminders uh, to them of who they are. Like right from the start, you are the chosen exiles whose being chosen is intertwined with the triune nature of God. The Bible never says explicitly God is triune in nature. There's one God in three persons. What you have throughout the scriptures are these kinds of descriptors. We know there's only one God. That's clear. And then you have verses like this that show the Father clearly at work, the Spirit clearly at work, and the Son clearly at work. Doing distinct things that are part of who they are as persons of the triune nature of God, but still one God. And God, Father, Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit 
are intimately involved in our new identity as chosen exiles. Exiles dispersed abroad in various regions of modern-day Turkey, all those location names, geographical names. Think of a region the size of the American Southwest, so from Texas to California. Peter's not writing to just this small city or this small province. He's writing to this huge swath of territory. All believers within that territory and all these places would receive this letter. And they were written, they were listed in, in, in the route that a messenger would take, a circular route, so that they could go from city to city sharing this letter. And when you use those terms, chosen, exiles, dispersed, you would think, if you study the scriptures, that this would be a Jewish audience. Because of those terms, chosen and exiles, that come straight out of the Old Testament. The Jews were already a dispersed people. The Jewish diaspora was a term the early church was already familiar with. More Jews lived scattered throughout the Roman Empire than lived in Jerusalem and Judea. You see this as early as Acts 2, when Peter is preaching the sermon on Pentecost. The other disciples have been in the upper room. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They all come out speaking, having the gift of languages, the gift of tongues, speaking in the languages of the people who had gathered in the city for the festival. Because these Jews had, had been scattered so long, they had adopted the customs uh, of the languages of the places that they live. They come back to Jerusalem for these festivals, and they don't all speak the same language. So for God to communicate to his people this new thing called the church, they had to have this gift of languages so that everyone could hear in their own tongue. But there are other clues from this letter that make it clear Peter wasn't writing to a Jewish background Christian audience, but a Gentile background Christian audience. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Echoing the language from Ephesians 2, Gentiles had been far off, but now through Jesus they had been brought near. You wouldn't say that to a Jewish group of people. Also in chapter 4, verse 3, For there are already... There has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. That is not how you would describe a Jewish group of non-believers in the first century. They were strictly monotheistic. They would not participate in the open worship of idols and doing the things that are described in that passage. Gentiles would, the pagans would. But the fact that Peter is writing to a Gentile group of Christians and saying to them, you are chosen exiles, is even more significant. Chosen. God chose them, as we'll dig more uh, into this in a little bit. Ultimately, they didn't choose God as much as he chose them. In the same way, he said about the Jews and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord has his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. So now, Gentiles, you're caught up in the same divine sovereign plan of God choosing his people. In the same way he chose the Jews in the Old Testament to be his people, now you Gentiles are caught up in that as well. Grafted in. This idea of being an exile or a stranger in the land goes all the way back to Abraham. The Jews were taught to remember this in Deuteronomy 26. Verse 4, Then the priest will take the basket from you and place it before the altar of the Lord your God. You would respond by saying in the presence of the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down to Egypt with a few people and resided there as an alien. Then he became a great, powerful, and populous nation. Who do you think that's referring to? You can guess. 
Abraham. I'm sorry, not Abraham. Uh, Jacob's family. Jacob's family went down to this Egypt where they grew into this populous nation while they were enslaved by the Egyptians. Eventually they became a nation. Eventually they had a land. But their roots were the roots of a wandering Aramean, which is part of the reason God wrote into his law to show kindness to the alien and stranger in the land. Because that was you at one time. But the idea of Gentiles as exiles also had a much bigger and broader meaning because they aren't exiled from their homeland of Jerusalem and Canaan. That would mean nothing to Gentiles. They didn't recognize Jerusalem and Judea as their homeland. They, just as we, are exiles on earth, having not yet arrived home. Philippians 1.27. Just one thing Paul writes, as citizens of heaven... Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We have a dual citizenship. Yes, we are firmly rooted in our identity and location on earth. Citizens of the U.S. or whatever nation you'd be a citizen of. Residents of Washtenaw Parish with families, jobs, relationships, responsibilities. But we are also citizens of heaven. And because of that, because of heaven being our true home, we are even more invested in that future reality than we are here. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 6, for instance, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. If your heart is in the temporary here and now, this is where you're storing up treasure. And it's going to have your money, your time, your focus, your energy. It's going to have all of you. But if your heart is in heaven, in this future kingdom to come with Jesus, and that's where you're storing up your treasures. Let's talk about money in this context, but it could be time, resources, energy. Then that's going to totally, radically change how you live your life. Are you living for this kingdom or are you living for another kingdom to come? And the tension is we live as citizens of both places right now. Like we're not 100% just engaged now in this place until we die or Jesus returns and then we go into this new reality. The reality, we don't zip off anywhere when the new heavens and new earth are coming down and making all things new. The creation will be recreated. The, the eternal state is not a faraway place to go. It's a reshaping and reforming of a broken and cursed creation made new. But we don't wait until then to live as citizens of that kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God has come. It's here. And one of the ways it is seen here and now is look around the room. In us. It's seen in us how we live as his people. Showing others this new way to live. It, it is the end of the matrix if you've seen that movie. When Neo has solved the matrix, this false rea reality created by the, uh, the machines, and he flies off into the sky, and he, I'm going to show you a new way to live. If that's too dated, you've never seen that, don't worry about it. We'll explain it later. But that, that is how we live. Like, we live in such a way we want to show the world there's a better way. There's this new way, this new life, this new experience that you can have in Jesus that's different from the way of the world. That's at odds at times with the ways of the world. 
We don't really fit into any one box. Our lives intersect almost all the same places as other people, but never perfectly. We don't fit neatly or perfectly into any political party. We don't laugh at every joke. We don't conform to all the cultural rules and norms. We don't and can't affirm or be affirmed by all groups of people. We stick out. We swim upstream. We're countercultural. Like you may have heard uh, this past week, what began as a routine chapel service at Asbury uh, University in Kentucky on Wednesday morning has turned into over 72, 80 hours and counting. As far as I know, they're still gathered of continuous worship since Wednesday morning. Confession of, confession of sin, people broken, people repenting. The chapel has remained full. People have come, people have gone. And it, it, as far as I know, it's still going on right now. Reminiscent of times before revival renewal movements that have broken out in the history of the church. I was reading one account of a student uh, getting his MDiv there who was very skeptical because he grew up in a culture where these kind of revival type movements were trying to be manufactured. Let's manipulate people's emotions to make things happen that weren't necessarily of the spirit of God. So he's like, this is just more of the same. You know, this truly can't be a thing of God. And he's pleasantly surprised. He said, it's not wild and chaotic. It's not just people being uh, slain in the spirit or laughing uncontrollably or barking like wild animals, things that have characterized some false revivals in the last 30 or 40 years. He described the presence of God as warm, gentle, comforting, yet invigorating and empowering. He said he and his wife stayed six hours. It felt like 15 minutes. We didn't want to leave. I wanted to run around. I wanted to take a nap, I wanted to laugh, I wanted to cry all at the same time. And it's all denominations and it's student-led. Students leading the reading of scripture, students leading worship, students leading the testimony of the people, students leading the prayers. Like, who does that? Weird, like we're like, awesome. Uh, how far is that from here, can I go? But for most of the world, like that's weird, I'm, I'm staying away, that's odd. We don't perfectly fit into any culture because this is not home. Unless, unless we begin to choose comfort and we begin to find out how can we fit in best? How can we not rock the boat? How can we go along to get along? And we find a niche to fit our lives into so that we no longer feel that tension that comes from not perfectly fitting into the world. Or we just become so much like the world that you can't really tell the difference anymore. It's a danger for a church like ours that talks so much about engaging the lost and those who are far from God. Go to all the places in the city that need the light of Jesus where there's darkness. Let's go where they're at. I expect them to show up in a building because people don't. Let's go where they're at. Let's do what they're doing. Let's engage the culture of our city that they're at. Let's go to the Mardi Gras parade. Let's go to the restaurants. Let's go to the bars. Let's have the drinks. Let's Go and have the Super Bowl party and invite them to our house. And that's awesome, and, and we've done that well. Lots of relationships we have with people who are far from God. But the danger is we, we just begin to become like them. And we never open our mouth and share the gospel. Because we don't want to risk losing the relationship. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't cause tension. And at some point, why are we in these relationships with these people?
The reality is, if you're trying to live for comfort, to fit into this world in comfort and ease, you're still, as a child of God, going to be unsettled. Because you know deep down, you were not made for this world. Your heart longs for more, greater, deeper, higher realities that nothing in this world satisfies. Only Jesus and his kingdom ultimately satisfy, and much energy and time is wasted by us and people that we know, chasing the next thing to fill that place that only he can fill. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. You can see it on people. You know people like this. The more you, you find your mind and heart settled and resting in Jesus and his kingdom, you come across those who are restless and you feel this manic energy of searching and you love them and you plead with them. Stop running. Stop running from how he's made you and find your rest in him. Yes, as we'll see, it doesn't mean we'll fit in. Sometimes we will get treated as they treated Jesus, suffering and persecution, but it's worth it. Because of what we get in Jesus, this new identity and this reality that's, that's really hard to even believe is possible. Peter, Peter begins here in, in, in verse uh, 1 and 2 to describe this. And just imagine now, you're one of the original readers or hearers of this letter. You're persecuted, you're facing persecution, all because you've chosen to follow Jesus. And the leader of the early church writes and says this to you. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are suffering, you are facing persecution, you are not forgotten. In fact, you are known before the foundation of the world by your Father, who loved you before the foundation of the world and initiated a plan of love to redeem you, to bring you into His family as Father, Son, and Spirit. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen because God looks into the future and chooses those who choose Him? Well, if that's how we want to define foreknowledge and choosing, there's some problems with that. If we're, if we're born spiritually dead, as Paul describes in Ephesians 2, then how can we choose Him? If we have to make ourselves alive in order to choose him because we're spiritually a corpse. How, how are we going to do that if we're dead? What does a dead person do? Nothing. We're a corpse spiritually until, very next verse, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. God can't just respond to our choices because unless he makes us alive, we're never going to choose him. He has to be the initiator. He has to be just like Jesus with Lazarus standing outside of our tomb saying, Lazarus, come forth, rise up. Jared, wake up. Jennifer, wake up. Come alive in Christ. And you keep reading and you know, how does that happen? By grace through faith. We don't know God's doing all that when we're spiritually dead. All of a sudden, one day, we look and, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. Jesus alone is that Savior. We don't see all the work that God's been doing since eternity past. 
We only understand from our perspective. From our perspective, yeah, I hear the gospel, I believe the gospel, I follow Jesus, but he was already at work to make that happen. He had to be at work to make that happen because we were dead, spiritually dead. Foreknowledge is not just merely foreseeing. This is more than just God's omniscience, knowing all things or seeing all things. The translation in English that we uh, read as know, K-N-O-W, has a greater range of meanings than we understand as just knowing or having knowledge of something. Uh, Genesis 4.1. The English Standard Version reads, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and more came. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. He didn't just know something in his head. Obviously, know or knew is describing something greater than just knowledge here. It's describing intimacy, sexual union between a man and his wife. It's better translated in the CSB. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Yes, that's what the writer is trying to say. A few other examples in Psalm 1-6, the ESV says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Is the writer trying to say that God is aware of the ways of the righteous, but he's ignorant, doesn't understand, or, or have knowledge of the ways of the wicked? No. The, the, again, the CSB does a better job of translating this, where he says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. God's intimately involved in the way of the, the righteous, but the way of the wicked are running from God. They're, they're leading to ruin. Amos 3.2, another one. I have known uh, God talking to his nation of Israel. He's actually pronouncing judgment on them. But he says in verse 2, I have known only you, Israel, out of all the clans on the earth. Does God not know that other people exist? Yeah, he knows. This is not just knowledge. This is intimate relationship, love. Foreknowing could be better understood as foreloving. Setting his love on us because he's chosen us. And his love has moved him to act in our lives for us to become his. I've set my love on you from eternity past. In choosing you and foreknowledge, for loving you. Some other passages, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And lastly, Romans 8, 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. It's called like the, 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 the golden chain of salvation or some term like that. If God predestines chooses, elects, whatever word you want to use, everyone, then Romans 8.30 is telling us everyone would be saved. But that's not what Romans 8.30 says. Those he predestined, he calls. And those he called, he justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. For those whom he has chosen and put his love on, they will be saved. Guaranteed. It's going to happen. You're his. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Now, some of you, your heads might be spinning, or your heart might be hurting, 
Right? You might have this gnawing in your gut, especially if you've never worked through this or dealt with this. If you've never seen this a lot in the scriptures, and it's okay. Like you might have a lot of questions. Good, so do I. The scriptures never explain this doctrine to us. The scriptures declare it. And all the writers of the scriptures declare it without question. We know it's true. This is who God is. Because it's part of the mystery of God that we can't grasp. We don't know the mind of God. Do you want a God that you can fully understand? You have all your questions answered. There's no mystery to Him anymore. Do you want that kind of God? Because if you do, then, then that's just you. Do you fully understand yourself? Do you know everything there is to know about you? Okay, then. There's always a gap. It's always a gap. And so in some mysterious way, God is so involved in salvation of his people that he can say before the creation of the world, I loved you, I chose you, I set my love on you, and I acted in your life in a way that worked to bring you to a saving relationship with me. That is unbelievable. Unbelievable that God was choosing us as his people before we were ever created. But we're not robots. It's not saying that. The Bible doesn't say that. We're making real decisions all along for which we'll be held accountable. What about free will? Well, let's talk about free will. Our free will is not nearly as free as we think it is. We're not free like God is free. We're very much more limited than we realize. So I prefer to say there's genuine human responsibility. We're making choices for which we're held accountable. We're not puppets. This is not fatalism. Well, if I'm not chosen, I just must have no shot. No one knows who is and who isn't. Only God knows. And no one else will know until the eternal state. Now you can know in this life, books of the Bible have been written, First John, for instance, have been written so that you would know you have eternal life. You can know that you're His. He wants you to have assurance. Yes. But for those who don't have assurance and those who aren't His, we don't know until the eternal state who are truly His and who aren't. Only God knows. One pastor put it like something like this, paraphrasing. If being chosen or elected meant that God painted a yellow stripe on everyone's back, who he chose, my life would be consumed with running around to see who was painted. Okay, you're his. Come be a part of this church. You're not painted, you're not his. They can't ignore you. But he didn't do that. What did he say? He sent his people to proclaim the gospel the good news of Jesus to all nations, so that everyone who would believe would become born again, children of God. That's what we do. We proclaim the gospel to everyone, assuming that everyone I interact with are either His or on the way to becoming His. And, and literally, until someone's last breath, we never give up. Because we don't know. You never give up. You never quit loving, sharing, serving, Praying, pleading with God to save someone. What about those who aren't cho chosen? Why are they not chosen? I don't know. I don't know why God chooses some, this person, and not this I don't know why He chose me. I don't have an answer for that. By His grace, that's all I got. I know I didn't earn it, I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it other than that I'm an image bearer. And he set his love on me. 
Only God knows those answers. But unless you're a universalist and you believe everyone will be saved, which we know Scripture is clear is not the case, then you have to have some explanation for why everyone isn't. And there's no aspect of our salvation that we can take credit for, that we can boast in. Remember, we're spiritually dead, but God made us alive in Christ. By grace, through faith, yes. Again, if this is creating inner turmoil in you, or maybe even anger in you, it's okay. Let's talk it out. Let's walk, work through it. If this makes you afraid that somehow you're not one of His chosen in love, that's really good evidence that you are. Because if you weren't, why would you care? That's in fact evidence that the second part of this reality is at work in you. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, He said His love on you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit moves in us. It's through the indwelling Spirit of God in us that all of this becomes a part of us. It's the Spirit moving in that makes us alive. It's the Spirit that's continually at work in helping us grow mature as Christians. But this seems to refer to the initial saving and sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying the Old Testament was was used to describe something that was set apart. Take this, it's going to be used in the temple, set it apart, sanctify it for holy use. We have been set apart for God. Sanctified to be His people. And it's the same way that when God sets His love on us, as soon as we are born, His Spirit is at work to set us aside as His to draw us to Him, to open our eyes and help us to see, to make our hearts receptive, to give us grace and faith that we need to one day confess that we are a sinner and Jesus alone is the one who's done everything necessary to save us. So if you're sitting here and you're afraid you're going to miss out on this because you're not chosen and your life is now consumed with trying to figure out if you're chosen or not, that's not the point. But the Spirit of God is at work helping you to care enough to be afraid. And the response to that, maybe fear or angst that you're feeling, is it's always the same. It's the same your entire life. The response to the Spirit of God at work in you. It is repentance and faith in Jesus. Repent, turn from sin, turn to Jesus. Jesus, you alone are the one I'm trusting in for life and salvation. I don't know Siri. <laughs> Siri thinks she's chosen. I guess. I have no idea why that happens. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I don't feel at all like I'm worthy of this love and choosing an election. I, like, you, you don't even know what to do with that. What, what, how do you deal with that? Like, I can't even understand it, but I don't, I don't have all the answers, Jesus, but forgive me. I believe that you alone are the one who paid the price for my sins. You alone can forgive me and cleanse me and make me new. You see, the scary place to be is not the place of fear or even the place of shame. Like, you don't feel like you're worthy because of your background or your pass your sins. The scary place to be is the place of apathy. I don't care. But here's the thing. like No one knows how and when the Spirit of God will bring this salvation about in your life. It could be a young age. It could be as an adult. It could be through some crazy circumstances that you would never predict. It could be near the end of your life like the thief on the cross. But you never give up hope for the people you love. You never stop praying or sharing and asking God to save them. Even if it doesn't happen in your life, it can still happen. Jesus told the religious teacher Nicodemus in John 3, Don't be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 
don't know. You don't know how the Spirit's going to move. Just be obedient. Pray, share, and see what He might do. The Spirit is at work to help us be obedient, says there at the end of verse 2. And to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Obedient is an absolute essential aspect of our salvation. Our obedience doesn't earn our salvation or earn God's love in choosing, and it doesn't earn the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Our obedience isn't paying God back. We can't. It's not even our obedience that ultimately keeps our salvation because we never obey perfectly. But our obedience is absolutely essential because without obedience, without fruit, where is the evidence that these spiritual realities are true of you? Obedience is the fruit of the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are His by how we live. We know we are His by how we live. That, that actually is where assurance comes from. You're, you're, you're striving in obedience. You're striving to obey. You love His commands. You want to obey them. Not perfectly. We know we fail. But you're walking in repentance and faith and trust, trying to live by His grace, this Christian life, the best that, way that you can. There's assurance there. But if you're just running from Him, in full, abject rebellion, obviously you're not going to be assured that you're his. Go and read the book of James or listen to the 28 sermons we spent in James last year. If your life is lacking the spiritual fruit of obeying the commands of Jesus, the response is not changing your behavior, but repent and believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus again. You can't fix yourself. Only He can. You've got to run to Him for Him to transform you, make you new. It could be you are a genuine believer, but you've just been in a season of rebellion, or maybe a dark night of the soul, or maybe your heart has grown hard, you're burned out with life, and He feels distant, and He brings you back. Or maybe you've just been religious, and you've never come alive in Christ. You, you've believed everything up here, you can pass a theological test. It's never become real here. It's transformed your emotions, and it's transformed your will, and it's transformed the way you live. Being a Christian is never just affirming that facts are true. It's, it, 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 it is that, but it's believing and basing your entire life in the reality that Jesus is your king. And because he loves him, you, you love him. And because you love him, you obey his commands. That's why we need each other. We need each other to look at each other's life and see where am I out of step with the gospel. Brother and sister, come alongside, help me to see it, and call me back to repentance. Call me back to Jesus. How does obedience work in tandem with God's choosing, foreknowledge, and the work of the Spirit? Well, another well-known story from Charles Spurgeon. He was visiting a friend who was sick, facing potentially the end of his life, and he was conflicted. Spurgeon asked his friend, how are you doing? He says, well, if I'm, I'm supposed to take this medicine the doctor gave me, but I don't know if I'm predestined to continue to live or if God is predestined that now I would die. And Spurgeon looked at him and says, well, if you take the medicine, you're predestined to live. If you don't take the medicine, then you're predestined to die. It, it can't be that simple. Like, why complicate our lives by trying to figure out the part of God we'll never understand or figure out? Do what you know to do. Do what He's commanded He created us to do. Love Him, serve Him, love others, serve others. All the things we're going to look at in the book of 1 Peter. Get the good news of Jesus to many, in as many people as possible. Pursue Him in holiness. All the remaining days of your life can be consumed with just trying to obey what we do know. 
Don't complicate matters by trying to unravel that which is unravelable, unsolvable. Paul writes some of the most complicated theology in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he finishes out chapter 11 by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, untraceable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that He should be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's considered... The, the greatest theologian that has ever written theology for the church. Some people consider him maybe the smartest guy who's ever lived. The way he wrote, the things he explained, the concepts he was able to articulate. And Paul gets to the end of this most complicated section and says, I don't know. <laughs> it's beyond me. But I'm going to praise him. And he goes right into Romans 12 with the most practical how-to. This is how you live the Christian life. This is what you do. So you don't have to be paralyzed by trying to analyze all this stuff. You can just obey the commands he's made clear. And then lastly, we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus in the Old Testament when Jewish people entered into a covenant relationship with God at Sinai. They were sprinkled with the blood of animals to signify a price had to be paid. Because of sin, there is a gulf between us and God. Sin brings separation. Someone has to pay the price for the sin. And God said in Genesis 3, if you sin, you will die. Romans 6, 23, the wage of sin is death. The paycheck we deserve because of our sins is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So how is that possible? Jesus bore our sins. He paid the price that we deserved by dying for us, shedding his blood to allow us back into God's presence and into a relationship that could be described as eternal life. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. We are God's covenant people now. Jesus said eternal life, John 17, 3, is that we may know you, the one, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. And then Peter ends this section by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Like he drops these seemingly huge theological realities that for some cause great angst. Lots of division in the history of the church over these things. Right? Even today. Maybe your angst this morning is you're, you're just so prideful and arrogant. I've got to figure it out. I cannot be okay without having answered this. Okay. Good luck. And I haven't solved it in 500 years. But you'll figure it out. Sure. Praying the Spirit of God will bring you to a place of humility. Like, I, I don't have to have the answers to all the mysteries of who God is. Because I realize he's God and I am not. Or maybe the angst is because we know in our hearts that we're been treasuring sin more than Jesus. And so we're kind of afraid to say we're not chosen. We're afraid we're going to miss out. And Peter would say to both of you and whoever else would be here, whatever angst you may be having, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you're in his, may grace and peace be multiplied. He wants you to enjoy and experience and love His grace. Because by His grace, He has poured this love out on you. He has brought you, rebel, who shook your fist in the face of God, not going to follow you. He's brought you in to become His dear love son and daughter. So that you could have peace with God, the God who created you. By God's grace. And you've heard enough about Jesus just today, just today,
to believe in Him and be in this relationship of peace with the God who created you. We're not about to hand out a theological test. Okay? There's no, there's no puzzle in the back you've got to you know, put together. Okay, now you can come in. There's no hoop you have to jump through. Be loved from eternity past by your Father and see and believe the Spirit is at work in you to make you His. And embrace Jesus and know that all of this is true for you and in you. Because now, okay, now I want to obey. I can't wait to obey so I can experience this life as a chosen one in exile. So I can experience Jesus and enjoy Him. So I can make Him known. This is what we celebrate every single week when we take communion. The reality that Jesus had to die because we're sinful. So his body was broken, the bread. His blood was shed, the cup. So he drank down the cup of God's wrath. He did it willingly, lovingly. We were so sinful, he, he had to die. Yes, it necessitated the death of Jesus. But we were so loved, he was glad to die. So it's always this mixture of emotions that, that you've sinned this, I've sinned this past week, today, right? Again, proving how desperately sinful I am. But Jesus and his love never run out. They're always sufficient to keep you, to remind you, to refresh you, to renew you, to reawaken passions that maybe you've had long ago, or to maybe give you a fresh passion you've never had for him, to enjoy him, to experience him, to share him with others. And so take a few moments. We're just going to have some, some quiet. Take a few moments to consider these things, to talk to the Lord about these things, to listen to the Spirit of God, what He's saying. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Be saved if, if you're not His. Let us know before you leave. And when you're ready, you can come and, and uh, grab a piece of bread, grab a cup. It, it, we, we open this up, not just to our covenantal members. We open this up to all followers of Jesus who are here, who have been baptized, who publicly profess your faith in Jesus, and you're walking in repentance. Like you're not, this means something to you. You're not just doing this because people are watching you and you think you have to do it. No, you're like, I believe this again today. I need this. So take a few moments to come when you're ready, and then we'll share this meal.